this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Carrie Lynn Evans welcoming you back to New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm looking forward to sharing with you Apocalypse and Heroism in Popular Culture, Allegories of White Masculinity in Crisis by Dr. Catherine Sugg. Stories of world-ending catastrophe have featured prominently in film and television lately. Zombie apocalypses, climate disasters, alien invasions, global pandemics, and dystopian world orders fill our screens, typically with a singular figure or tenacious group tasked with saving or salvaging the world. Dr. Sugg asks, why are stories of end times crisis so popular with audiences? And why is the hero so often a white man who overcomes personal struggles and major obstacles to lead humanity towards a restored future? This book examines the familiar trope of the hero and the recasting of contemporary anxieties in films and TV like The Walking Dead, Snowpiercer, Mad Max Fury Road, and more. Some have familiar roots in Western cultural traditions, yet many question popular assumptions about heroes and heroism to tell new and fascinating stories about race, gender in society, and the power of individuals to change the world. Catherine E. Sugg is a professor of English and Latino and Puerto Rican studies at Central Connecticut State University in New Britain, Connecticut. She teaches and writes on world literatures, Latino and comparative American studies, and film and media. She's also written several journal articles and published a book entitled Gender and Allegory in Trans-American Fiction and Performance. She joins me today to talk about her new book. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Literary Studies. Catherine, as a fellow female researcher in science fiction and dystopia, I'm so excited to be talking to you today. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Carrie Lynn. It's really great to be here. Appreciate the invitation. So let's start with you. Tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to work in your field. Well, it was um, like everyone in academia, I start off as a critic analyzing literature texts and um, making arguments of what they do or show, often inadvertently being sort of a child of the 90s. My main motivations for going into comparative literature, which was my field, came from an undergraduate conversion experience with 1980s feminist theory. And... um, And then the emerging fields of colonial studies and the humanities, which together drew me into the, at that time, emerging field of comparative American studies and transnational feminist theory. So, you know, starting off with literatures in Latin American, Caribbean and U.S. literatures and then performance, film and popular culture, I still remain kind of a narratologist, I suppose, looking at how narrative and genres express or reveal cultural dynamics as well as 
the way certain histories and societal dynamics often that go way deep into Western culture as well as other cultures, um, including, of course, misogyny, racism, Eurocentrism, etc., but continue to shape both our stories and the world that we kind of live in, sometimes in ways we overlook. So I'm hoping to grow into more of a a public writer, but even my public-facing writing that I've done so far um, remains kind of tied to the goal of how to highlight ideas, how ideas about gender, sexuality, race, and economic statuses and importance, like um, who counts, um, continue to influence various levels of culture. Right. Excellent. Okay, so next, maybe tell us how you came to write this particular book. Well, it was twofold, I suppose. In one way, it started with academic thinking around um, an essay I wrote in early 2000s on the writer Cormac McCarthy and the film by John Sayles, Lone Star, which is like 1996. And Sayles, you know, it was sort of this similar dynamic of the argument in the book, which Sayles is this great director with wonderful liberal bona fides. And I really love the movie. I'm originally from Texas. So this whole multicultural Texas, US-Mexico border um, was resonant. And I I thought he did a great job, but there was this way in which the whole film plays on a cross-cultural cross-cultural romance between the main character, who's played by Chris Cooper, who's this sheriff, a white guy, and Pilar, his high school um, first love, played by Elizabeth Pena. So the way in which the U.S.-Mexico border at that point was understood in liberal discourse and the imagination of the film as this place of multiculturalism, mixing, contact, um, kind of gets this twist where no one was talking about the gender dynamics of how Sam becomes still the central character. And this resonated with me with the Border Trilogy by McCarthy, um, particularly All the Pretty Horses, but also Cities of the Plain. So in both, the romance between an Anglo man and a Mexican woman becomes this story about the white man's evolution and possible redemption, in some cases, perhaps failure in McCarthy. So that was the kind of one of the academic um, and sort of critical thoughts that was behind it. And then also, I was thinking about Apocalypse, um, largely through um, some work in my first book on Leslie Marmon Silko's Almanac of the Dead, which also takes the apocalypse as a kind of diagnostic for U.S. cultural histories and the ongoing sort of devastation of settler colonialism. And then, of course, yeah, the apocalypse in popular culture. So I'm loving these films too, but also starting to get worried, particularly by Emmerich. And uh, throughout the 2000s, I used to say, I've just, I caught a wave and now it's like on 300 miles high. I just don't know how to keep up with um, the way in which apocalyptic thinking and stories in both film, but then TV, then video games, and also tying that stuff to the West as like Red, um, Red Dead Redemption and some of the other games that came out. So all of this sort of got jumbled together and I eventually split what had been both a literary and popular culture mash um, into two different projects. And this is the popular culture one um, that I came to. And, and then, as I mentioned in the preface, my son made me watch Zombieland, which he loves. And I was like, oh, God, I'm going to have to deal with the zombie apocalypse, aren't I? So that was how that all got going. <laughs> That's fantastic. I'm a big fan of all those things you just mentioned, too. Uh, so your title is Apocalypse and Heroism. So let's just start with this particular genre of pop culture. Tell us what you mean by the term liberal apocalypse and what you think we can learn by examining it. Thank you. You know, the title was my, uh, especially the notion of heroism, was my way of sort of trying to bring in 
the question of individual, and this is also, yeah, comes up later, the individual and the notions around what the individual and agency mean in our kind of general cultural tradition, but also our contemporary political thinking. And um, the liberal apocalypse was kind of from these early, these 90s and early 2000s films. You know, I, I kind of give Emmerich a hard time for the day after, not, the day after tomorrow is different, but especially 2012 and the day after tomorrow. And, um, and then going back to um, Independence Day. So the idea that these are newly um, liberal films, newly sort of liberal action hero films that have multiracial casting and really strong, cool women characters. But I still, you still see the way the story comes back to um, a kind of either good governance or a hero like the president or um, Will Smith saving the whole world, not just the day, but like the entire you know universe. And this gets new iterations in Marvel comic universe. Um, so the, this was like sort of a way of looking at how the stories are still kind of both, they look conventionally liberal in the way we talk about it in media, but they also encapsulate the liberalism of the Enlightenment and Western thinking around individual, individual agency, freedom, and as I say, kind of the way in which this agent or this individual is still foundationally considered a white man, which kind of goes back to the colonial legacies that um, both culture and our societies are kind of still, you know, dealing with and operating on. So that was the liberal apocalypse. And it was something that both early readers and myself, you know, trying to unpack what liberalism is doing in contemporary discourse, as well as in these, um, you know, films and TV shows. But to say it's kind of a standard, you know, critic move. It's like, oh, that, you know, your fave is problematic. That thing you love, well, this is what it's actually doing. But I do think particularly the gender, but also the race dynamics that these films perpetuate and that appeal to us so much um, are worth like looking at in detail, even um, in the later iterations where things get quite more um, critical and not nearly as celebratory as some of the earlier films I was talking about. Do you have a sense? Um, I don't know if you can summarize here, but do you have a sense of why apocalypse narratives seem to be so overwhelmingly popular right now? Well, you know, <laughs> as we were talking about today and in this last five years, um, the notion of everything is apocalyptic is ending is some of the, something that's sort of floating in the popular air and also in political commentary, but in like the t notions of pop culture, fiction, film and TV, and, and even other kinds of media, I kind of go back to Kermode, Frank Kermode in a sense of the ending. You know, there's this idea that in times of crisis, an ethical transition, the apocalypse, given sort of its function in Christian eschatology, um, it both promises, you know, a break or a revealing of what's going wrong. And so I think that a lot of this is just the general anxiety that has been, you know, you could argue even from the civil rights era, or as some people say, just all of Western modernity, you know, what's going to happen? Where is this leading? And the it's kind of a habit of a storyline or a genre that we keep coming to, but it's also been ex extremely useful in doing those things. And as I mentioned, Silco, she uses that idea of an apocalypse and kind of the tradition in a really rigorous way to highlight these links between, you know, Native American genocide and contemporary, you know, 
horrific sort of necropolitical capitalist exploitation of resources. It's set in Tucson, Arizona, and so the desert and the water. Um, so it becomes this really useful mechanism for showing a lot of complicated things. And I think that it's helping people think through, and I think that's why it's popular, um, the possibilities and the fears that so many different sectors of our societies um, kind of are facing or dealing with. And um, so that's, I, yeah, I, I think it's mostly just fear and anxiety, but it's also um, speculative, as I kind of talk about in the book a little bit. You know, there's this utopic or hopeful edge to apocalypse that sometimes people criticize, and I think I even used to, but um, I'm increasingly convinced that it does offer options for reimagining kind of our narrative habits and offering new directions. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so next, I'll ask you about heroism. What kind of heroism are you tracing in your analysis, and how do you contextualize that with regard to gender, race, and normative cultural frameworks? Yeah, that, and that's sort of, as I mentioned, kind of coming to heroism as the, instead of saying, you know, individuality, which is kind of the thing I'm looking at most, is sort of the individualism of um, the West's imaginary and how it can it promotes a certain notion of who saves the day and how, but it also um, is the, you know, it sort of prevents thinking in other ways about community, community formation, collectivity, and care. And so I think the way in which the hero's journey is like Joseph Campbell and his template of the monomyth um, start is kind of one, considered one of the origin stories for the genre study of. Um, this kind of hero's journey story, which so much culture still falls into, um, is also a way of talking about the foundational notions of how, as I mentioned, the hero's still kind of generic template is the man, is, you know, and as Sylvia Winter and others, the human still sort of measured by um, white men or white masculinity. And as we change as a society, some of those habits are shifting but the kind of heroism that I'm looking at is the one, especially in the critical chapters where I'm looking at, you know, things like Snowpiercer or The Walking Dead, um, they're sort of exposing how that notion of that agency and that ability to do things turns on itself or is revealed as actually not how either society or people operate. So we have these myths of individualism and these myths of heroism that all kind of cohere on um, notions of whiteness and masculinity, somebody recently was calling it um, the problem of empathy. You know, so why is it that we care, even no matter if you're like a feminist white woman or a black um, fan of the MCU, there's still this way in which we cathect to these stories of, you know, saving the world or the world being in danger and somehow people working through it. And um, that's where I think that notion of agency or the problem of how to understand what we can do and what we do do um, can kind of be revealed in some of these stories and both their good ways and the good things they do and the sort of returns or the reproduction of um, various ideologies that they end up enacting. 
So in chapter one, you examine neoliberal apocalypse, capitalist realism, and the status of critique in the children of men and Mad Max Fury Road. So you describe children of men as creating an explicit allegory of today's social ills, run amok to their extremes, which sets out to critique contemporary neoliberal politics and conservative ideology, yet ultimately kind of reiterates a white supremacist narrative that has its roots in these. So is that right? Do I have that right? Yes, your summary captures kind of the key issue for the chapter and for much of the book, really, which is that even with some of the recent 21st century, more critical and incisive portrayals of why the apocalypse is imminent, um, how they fall back on genre, how they fall back on certain storylines and notions of like genres of the human which I was just saying, you know, kind of drawing from um, Jamaican philosopher Sylvia Winter, that we have these patterns of both narrative and understanding of who counts. That, like in Children of Men, the main character, Theo, played by Clive Owen, is both a kind of a new kind of hero. He's not violent or militaristic, and he's kind of ironic and disaffected. And so his masculinity is not normative or toxic, as people like to say. But he does end up taking over this film's you know, storyline and its focus. So even as Quaron is making this really prescient critique of economic inequality and immigration hysteria and the role of race and um, nationalism in um, these dynamics that produce this sort of ongoing you know, dystopic, violent society that um, London in 2027 is shown to be, it still kind of centers on Theo and how he saves Key. So Key being the African refugee who's pregnant with the world's first child in 19 years. Um, and she's there's character that shows possibilities that the film is highlighting, like dispossession. And, you know, it uses all this newsreel style photo that calls the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and um, in Palestine and, and the plight of Palestinians. So it brings up these iconic images as well as the Holocaust. But um, it still kind of comes to become this action film where Theo saving Key and Key's trusting Theo. So while it's not maybe white supremacy per se, um, Quaron, who has a really interesting you know, body of work and has does wonderful, you know, wonderful things in as a Mexican director, but there's sort of this ongoing habit of colonial and sort of masculine centering. Um, in this film, at least, I think um, Roma does other things that. Um, kind of reproduces the storyline of a white, well-meaning white man who's, you know, the most reliable person, the savior um, in a crisis, and who becomes necessary for us to have that focus um, for the story to take pleasure in it. Right. So similarly, Mad Max Fury Road sets out a critique of environmental degradation, capitalist exploitation, and significantly patriarchy and toxic masculinity. So tell us how this plays out here and what you make of its more triumphant, optimistic ending. Yeah, I love this movie. And in some ways, um, I think you know, the reading of it, and because Miller does this terrific job in Fury Road that pictures the apocalypse as primarily both environmental, like the the sort of whatever went wrong in society is vaguely referred to in the opening, but what it results is an, you know, a devastated um, landscape and patriarchal domination that is incredibly retro and incredibly grotesque. Um, some of the issues, you know, like the Eileen Jones, who sort of like called it, you know, so hypergendering and it was ridiculous in its portrayal of femininity and the green place. It's like, oh my God, is everybody going to be doing yoga there? You know, these women want this sweetness and, but the reality of the world is this harsh, 
um, you know, cars and machinery and, and war and, you know, domination by you know, the um, figures like um, Morton Joe and Morton Joe or, um, and his society. So when the film turns to um, the Charlie Theron figure of, of Furiosa, um, it brings up both a critique of that patriarchy and that masculinity um, as leadership, but because she is portrayed as so macho, um, there's sort of an, ambigu- an ambiguity in how to take her function as the new hero. You know, Max is there and he's shown eating lizards and, you know, being the titular hero of the, of the film. But the filmmakers and the storyline is handed over in many ways to Furiosa and they share it. So it's, it becomes a really interesting revision of both agency and leadership and the collective that she has with her of the um the wives and how they gang, you know, join up with other women. All of this produces um, a really interesting sort of allegory of a different kind of revolution that turns into basically a gender revolution. In some ways, I suggest that, you know, because she's good with a gun and in a fight and isn't very emotional or talkative, you know, she still is sort of playing into a kind of masculinity, but leaving room. And this is sort of like key in, um, children of men, there are these suggestions of options that I think in Mad Max, Miller and the film sort of explore more fully. So it really takes you, you so why is it more triumphant and optimistic? Well, it really takes you through how you might overturn the society. And it ends, you know, with the collective of women and even the gorgeous, scantily clad wives all kind of rising up. And it is very um, inspiring and collective. And I think both, I argue, but really even other critics more um, emphatically, less ambi- ambivalently perhaps than myself, kind of see this as an, you know, sort of a, a gender revolution that really does overturn the story um, that the film seemed to be saying were the causes. And it does kind of more precisely you know, nail um, patriarchy and masculinity and the love of cars and, and sort of hyper-masculine um, um, performances as one of the causes of this um, terrible society that they're all stuck living in and fighting each other for. So um, I think it offers that kind of utopia in a way that is um, really satisfying and, and actually opens doors in a, w- in a way that perhaps some of the other films, um, well, actually the later films in the book do, but um, I think it's a great you know film and option, but there's this sort of question of, okay, what is gender doing here? And as I mentioned, the racial erasures, even though it's kind of a story of domination, exploitation, and competition that is, it looks like a Western or a frontier or a colonial story, but there are no non-white figures. <laughs> so it's kind of an interesting um, text in that sense. Um, but so, yeah, that's sort of where I think it does this really cool thing in terms of creating a new storyline and making it really um, riveting and action filled. So it, portray- it sort of satisfies the genre needs that audiences or the filmmakers might have, but it does push it in this new direction that makes it um, a lot of fun and really productive, not just critical, I guess. 
So next you discuss the brief TV series Firefly and the film Serenity by Joss Whedon, extending the discussion of themes of settler colonialism and gender and adding a significant dose of irony to the critical toolbox. So you suggest that this story approaches apocalypse through, and I'll use your words here, through the possibilities of ironic redirections. What's happening here and what does Whedon's approach accomplish, do you think? Um, Yeah, this is great because in some ways there's a lot of things that I think that the film and the TV show Firefly do with irony and that Whedon's work does more generally. And like many, um, I'm a long time or was a pretty long time fan of um, Whedon and of course Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And so Firefly had been this binge favorite for me and my friends in the early 2000s. so taking the post-apocalyptic space Western as its generic template and using, but framing both the West and the hero in this ironic joking manner seems to launch this sort of critique of who, you know, Mal Reynolds is as a man and as a captain and also kind of underscoring as people like Jerry Canavan said, the way that the society itself is an extrapolation and, an, and a hyperbole of, you know, the histories of colonialism, of empire spreading, of a biopolitical state that has control over everyone but is willing to, you know, ignore or leave to their own devices um, with, you know, very few resources and support um, large chunks of the population. So it sort of sets off again, kind of in this liberal vein that I'm talking about with um, the introduction, but it does it in a way that's really focusing um particularly on gender. And, you know, as I mentioned, you have the captain, Mal Reynolds, and then the array of the crew, um, sort of different styles of masculinity through um, Alan Tudyk's character, Wash, and Adam Baldwin as Jane. So there are all these different kinds of men that are portrayed in a a way. And then the women come in, um, particularly Kaylee, and who's the mechanic, and she's really gorgeous and flirtatious, but also uh, the best mechanic, you know, in the verse or whatever. So it's both, and, and of course, Zoe, who's um, Mal's um, lieutenant, she's the sort of the buddy cop, buddy leadership, and played by Gina Torres. So it focuses on sort of re that notion of kind of multicultural casting and having women in roles like the the sidekick lieutenant that does all these things that both ironize but also um, play with the generic expectations of what a Western or what a science fiction movie would be doing. Um, Some of the issues come in, and I think these are really interesting. Like I think Wheaton is trying to, as he says, create a Western story, an American story about immigration and settlement that also um, exposes some of the crimes of, you know, U.S. history, um, the notion of um, Native genocide, as well as highlighting a multicultural portrayal of that origin story. And, um, but he's featuring masculinity a lot. You know, he's of the whole question of what kind of guy Mal is, why is he fascinating? All this becomes central to the early um, series. And then they introduce River Tam, um, Summer Glau, who's just this gorgeous waif-like young woman who's very unstable. Um, She shows up naked in the first episode that she shows up in. I think it's the first second, um, the first one. So she's figured as kind of femininity itself. And I think this is where um, Whedon's both really interesting, but also some of the problems 
um, in what Firefly does for me, at least start to get going because River is this unstable, possibly crazy. Jane calls her crazy several times, but she also has these capacities. So the issue of what the community is going to do to survive and how River is both kind of a threat, but by the time to their survival, to their safety, um, because she's the Alliance has messed with her brain and made her a weapon as well as this refugee or this, um, you know, on the run, her and her brother. So the question of whether, um, you know, Whedon's critique and his uses of irony to play with the genres that he's bringing in um, is fully successful, kind of comes back to some of the ways I think the Children of Men works, but with a particular Whedon-esque um, twist, which, you know, he, with Buffy, as well as many of his other works, such as Dollhouse, this function of femininity and how women are, there's a fascination with um, feminine characters and women capacity, women's capacities or femininity, what it can do in a collective or a society that's turning in a bad direction. In Firefly, and this might be a contrast to what Dollhouse does, River is both super important, but also sidelined to sort of the story of how Mal really does prove himself to be a true leader and a real man. And, you know, has this epiphany at the end where he's facing the, the state and realizing that he can't just go off and be an outlaw independent hero. He has to play a role in saving society. And, um, and as I talk about in the chapter, you know, a lot of that is, um, developed through the contrast between him and the operative, um, played by Chiwetel Eofer, who um, also shows up in Emmerich films and also shows up in um, Children of Men. So he's sort of this black character that's there to be terrifying and you know important, but eventually in the comparison between the main black man lead and the main white man lead, the white man sort of teaches the lesson and shows the way. And that becomes, I think, kind of, again, the recentering of Mal in the film um, and in the TV show, even with lots of interesting directions and possibilities. And I think a pretty involved exploration of what the sort of gendering of leadership and gendering of community roles um, means you know, the way which River keeps getting kicked out of the spaceship, the fireflies, um, kind of a problem for them all. But as you know, Fillion has said um, in an interview, he was so appreciative of this opportunity because he got to carry the show. And I think that notion of where um, the show really remains stuck, where its focus is. So it's ironizing things, but it still is coming back to. Um, you know, it can ironize the hero and gender roles and stereotypes, but as a way of launching a critique of these things, um, but it still comes back to the centered, centering story. And in this sense, um, yeah, I think that that's kind of what happens at the end of Serenity, because even though he's there and River has proven herself in these great images and this great storyline of beating, you know, killing all the Reavers and the climactic scene and like, um, Summer Glass, that, that image of hers or standing over everyone with her swords is just really amazing and fantastic. Um, the whole film's narrative sort of goes back to Mal and kind of places her in a, in a contained position, which is in a way a contrast to what happens in uh, Mad Max. Like River is harnessed to the, the man's story in a way that Furiosa actually isn't. So I think that's one of the interesting details that comes about. I mean, we could talk about what you know happened 
to Joss Whedon in the last five or 10 years and the way in which his own reputation as this great guy and liberal white guy who can show us these things has been tarnished because in a way what I'm saying in the chapter and in the, you know, that there's still a kind of gendering or misogyny or primacy that needs to go to the, to the masculine, to white men that, um, in his personal life and in, in the, in the TV show, um, isn't let go. You know, he still hangs on to that. Okay. So as a longtime fan of The Walking Dead, I was really excited to see how you applied your line of analysis to this show. Uh, and as you mentioned, it push, puts issues of traditional white male leadership front and center of its narrative, like these others we've been talking about. Interestingly, though, you suggest that it pushes the generic conventions of the Hollywood Western and the zombie apocalypse to such extremes as to expose these settler colonial narratives as bankrupt and self-defeating presenting such traditionalism as, quote, almost Kafka-esque in its circularity and futility. So I think you've really put your finger on something here because this resonated for me. I think for some viewers, uh, including myself at times, this articulates why the show can get frustrating. But you actually argue that this pattern is making an important point, which helps me feel differently about that. So please elaborate. Well, that's great to hear. I have discussions, you know, with friends working in similar veins on popular culture and political theory and, you know, the function of um, Rick and Rick Grimes and what he's doing in the TV series, which you know, it's so long, it's hard to keep tracking. But, um, you know, the opening of the whole enterprise is we need Rick. And so the, the question of leadership and agency and in a survivalist situation where everyone um, has to work together, but you need a leader. Um, these sorts of things are, you know, put front and center. And um, perhaps, as you have noticed, and the, and the corollaries to the Western frontier settings, you know, a, a sort of endangered, belabored, isolated group that has to build a town or build a community. All of these sorts of lines of um, of genre are there in the show from the start. And as I mentioned, you know, they're underlined in the sort of Western atmosphere and naming of, of particularly in the early seasons. Um, so, and this kind of comes back to why you, know, you said, well, how does it, why has it become a um, pattern that is instructive or that is doing something that is more than just making everything boring and Kafka-esque and kind of monotonous by seasons, say six, seven with Negan, as we were talking about. And I think, what I'm arguing, and I do think this is what's working in, in both the comic series and the TV show, that um, we're encouraged to care about Rick and, and Daryl in particular, so the badasses of the apocalypse, and that they are the ones that um, are doing all the fun things. But as viewers, you know, people I talk to, they're like, it's so frustrating because they make such dumb decisions. So <laughs> this question of leadership and how it can go in a Wild West situation at the end of the world, but how it can go wrong. Um, I do argue that one of the things that the shows focus on um, masculinity and particularly leadership with Rick Grimes is elaborating a kind of um, crisis of white masculinity that we're experiencing, you know, in sort of contemporary life, the way people talk about, you know, what will happen to white men or the crisis of masculinity and in um, sense multiculturalism and also some of the ways in which people, you coming back to your question, earlier question about why the apocalypse, well, the apocalypse is cool. Like it gives people an opportunity to do things and to, you know, have consequential actions. And the back of the 
comic series has this blurb that I've always come back to, you know, that basically is like how talking about the stupefaction and abjection of everyday consumer existence. Like we don't, you know, we buy things, we don't get to do anything, but now, now, you know, you have to turn off, you don't have the post office and you can't buy anything. You're on your own. And now you can finally start living. So this sort of promise of a really, um, exaggerated agency, a capacity to do things as an antidote to how neoliberalism and, and citizenship have become these sort of passive, it feels like you have no power, no say. It's either you know business and money or bosses, even our jobs have become, um, and jobs for white men in particular, um, you know, think of the truckers, like nobody can actually make their own decisions or own their own business. They're, they're now just workers in these big conglomerates that hypermanage their time and their movement. So that's kind of the early part of the argument and, and thinking of how, why the show got so hugely popular is because, you know, they're so impactful and the notions of kill or be killed and everything matters um, is sort of elaborated in very effective ways. But as you mentioned, so I argue that somehow, though, Rick becomes the problem. And this happens pretty early in the, like, by season three and four. He keeps um, getting the group. Everyone dies, you know, or anyone can die, the trope, as like the TV trope site has. And they can, um, so even though it looks like he's fighting and winning the fight, as they say, more effectively than other groups, um, they still end up in the same position. Everything, everybody's killed. Everything's destroyed. The zombies come and get them, and they ha- have to move on and start over. And the group is sort of, you know, dispersed or bifurcates in various ways. And so you have other storylines. Um, so I think that there's a kind of other narrativity going on. Another kind of story that, for me, links to why it's a zombie apocalypse and why the horror of the grossness of the show, which made it both popular, but a lot of people couldn't watch it because it was, you know, really highlighted, you know, dismemberment and disgusting portrayals of all, you know, the extras, how the extras on The Walking Dead became, it was a famous gig that if you got to be covered in gore and be a zombie, it was kind of a cool thing. And so that becomes this, the genre of horror intervenes in the genre of the Western and exposes kind of these same things. But now Rick and Daryl and some of the other ones are kind of the problem that keep a part of the problem, even though it doesn't seem like there's alternatives that keep them in this loop of always having to return to the same position and always having to start over. And, um, and of course, we're talking about the sort of retro vision of traditional gender roles that was particularly in the first season where you have Lori as the wife and all, and even Carol who evolves into a great character, but there was just this very strict division. The men were doing things and the women were doing all this domestic work and, um, and relying on the men to keep them alive and fed and all the other things. And I talk a little bit throughout about how, you know, the not, the notion of Western of masculine skills, you know, and I guess frontier skills of killing or being killed, military weapons, you know, di- um, discipline, sort of the disciplines of the groups. So all this comes around in the show, but it, the way in which Rick, in particular, is shown to be actually suffering and his life, you know, the world is terrible, like the world in the show. So it's always interesting that people, it became so hugely popular. And that's the Kafka-esque circularity, which in a way I'm drawing, in obvious ways, I'm kind of drawing from Lauren Berlant's um, notion of cruel optimism. Like they're tied to a story and an understanding of the zombie apocalypse that keeps them locked in 
a kind of impasse where nothing can change and nothing can move forward. So for the show, in some ways at least, it allows this really long elaboration of what that being stuck in that impasse um, looks like and feels like, even though it keeps the active characters kind of there for the fun and for what they show. And that that becomes the main point, I guess, that if this is, if the apocalypse is going to look like the frontier and everyone's going to have to be in a co- competitive, violent competition for survival, it's going to be really ugly and there isn't necessarily a way out, you know, and it, and I think that in Kirkland in the comics as well as in the show, some of that gets um, is intentional and underlined, you know, throughout the narrative. And I guess that's where um, I come in at the notion of the failure and the kind of nihilism that is kind of underlining where The Walking Dead was going all along, and that it really wasn't this story of. of um, men finally getting to do things and, and be badass, but it was actually the story of futility and horror and suffering that the um, TV show ends up giving us. Yeah. I think that's really interesting about wondering about the, about Kirkland's intentions from the beginning, as much as, you know, we're not supposed to put too much authorial right. <laughs> intention in there, but it is a, a really yeah, interesting question. Cause like you say, those first seasons, not only highlight the gendered economy where men are hunting and protecting blah, blah, blah. And the women are literally doing the laundry. Um, (laughs) But those episodes also questioned that economy because uh, Andrea was like, screw this. I'm not going to do the laundry. I want to sit on top of the thing with a gun and protect. And they were kind of talking about how bad it was that things had regressed along gender lines as much as there was some necessity for it to do it. And that just makes me think of the other ways that across the seasons, more of these stereotypes, more of these well-trodden narrative treads that you're pointing to do kind of get subverted to the point where I think it's season nine or 10 or the end of season nine, maybe, Rick's gone. And yeah. right up to that point, it's this, it's, there's very much of the same refrain. Well, we have to have Rick. Well, Rick's the leader. Well, Rick makes dumb decisions, but we still follow him <laughs> because of the sake of following him. And then poof, he's gone. And um, in my opinion, the show is better off without him almost, although that would be a totally subjective thing, but I can think of other points too, where, it, it starts to question those narrative um, structures. So Carol becomes very much a leader in her own right, but in a different way. So it does make me wonder if Kirkland is very subtly and over a really long period of time kind of saying, nah, let's throw out all of these, these old tropes. Do you think? Yeah, and this is, again, like, um, and I think you're right, and others have commented on how particularly seasons 9 and 10, and you know, the problem, can we just get rid of particularly Carl and Rick? You know, uh-huh. just, why do we keep coming back to these? Is um, one that some fans, you know, some fans were extremely attached, and, you know, the fury that met the decision to um, eliminate Carl as a character was, you know, on the, on the Internet, huge. But, and as you point out, there was always the both, hyper you know exaggerating the traditionalism but then questioning it and this came up along racial lines as well and 
you know, you with, with Morgan and King Ezekiel, you know, there are the way in which the black men are no longer just being killed like Tyrell was, you know, early on that, um, you know, the whole uh, meme of even with no cops and no police, black man still buys, <laughs> dies in prison. Yeah, that's <laughs> so, so good. Exactly. And there's, um, and you know, again, sort of reflecting some of the things that happen in Firefly, but perhaps I think, I do think a little bit more critically and a little bit more, um, like the, the show, or at least intentionally, was willing to follow the, those lines, as you say, to their, um, both their critique, but also their undoing. So you get more and more um, groups that are led by women. You get Carol becoming both independent, but also really interestingly um, aligned across various groups and having all these different kinds of relationships. Yeah, I, I do kind of include a sort of a question because Michonne obviously is um, everyone's favorite character or maybe not, but <laughs> she's just great. But the whole reshown, you know, why do we have to have, you know, this sort of conglomerate character where she becomes the wife or the, you know, the mother figure um, in those mid seasons and, um, other critics have talked about sort of the, the use of family as an organizing trope in both you know, liberalism and neoliberalism, the way in which now if you're, you're on your own, the family becomes the unit and the film kind of portrays that or the TV show kind of portrays that. But as you say, in the other, once you get rid of Rick and that organization, it's like other options become possible and all these periphery, periphery, periphery associations that had been present in the television show have a chance to get developed and other characters have a chance to take more center stage. So yeah, I think that's a great point and agree. Not to belabor this, but yeah, yeah I, that was another thing that you just made me think of is that the, the, fam, the nuclear family, family, excuse me, really gets blown apart in some of the last seasons too. I noticed that they were really making a point of showing how blended families talk about and with adopted children, because so many people have so many dead families, um, that they were really pushing the blended family as being just as valid and legitimate as the old nuclear family. And that kind of ties into this discussion, but, but to move on, because like you say, there's a lot of chatter about about uh, The Walking Dead. Uh, so your next chapter examines a couple of films that are less mainstream and American-centric than some of the properties we've been discussing. Uh, we've got Snowpiercer from 2013 from Korean director Bong Joon-ho, who some may recognize he recently won an Oscar for Parasite, excellent film. Uh, so this one addresses climate catastrophe on a more global scale. And Sleep Dealer is a film from 2008 directed by Alex uh, Rivera, which foregrounds the concerns of Mexicans and specifically indigenous Mexicans in relation to border politics with the United States. And I keep running into this one in my own reading lately on cyberpunk too. So yeah. these films also engage in an extrapolation of the conditions of neoliberal capitalism, but they are more utopic in featuring heroic revolutionary impulses. So let's start with Snowpiercer. How does this engage with or diverge from, and please tell us what this wonderful word means, necrofuturism? Yes, um, that is a great term. And that comes from Jerry Canavan, um, who's worked on several of these texts. We keep kind of crossing paths and now we go, oh, no, he scooped me again. But <laughs> the um, term that he uses was um, coming, I think it was discussing Snowpiercer, um, but it might have been Firefly, that you know, the necropolitics is a term from Achille Mbembe, which takes Foucault's biopolitics and sort of the idea that our, and this is definitely a key 
concept for how people talk about what we now say um, call neoliberalism, that with the 19th century or so, that governance stopped being one of the social contract, if it ever was, and became more and more um, managerial and managing individuals society, not as individuals, but as bodies of data, or as, you know, sort of notions of public health, that people don't have the kind of agency or standing, even in governmental, you know, democracies, um, that they think they do, and that government and capital have been moving towards this idea of you just are pushing people around in various ways. And um, Mbembe uses, draws from that as well as Agamben, who um, talked about bare life to say, you know, that actually going back to, well, remember to like slavery and the plantation and Agamben talks a lot about the Holocaust and concentration camps, that these are structures of governance that kind of reveal in their exaggerated formation or foundational formation in terms of the plantation, how how it really is in society that you have, you know, domination that some people are just sort of managed as, you know, bodies or animals that people, you know, not animals as but um, in conditions that are basically um, necropolitical, they're, they're there to die or to be let to die. If um, so be it, you know, they, they have no actual standing or function in society. So necrofuturism, like necropolitics, is this idea that this is how society's actually been working under the cover of our rhetoric around enlightenment, um, democracies and individualism and um, contractual agreements between governments and governed. And so this, it's both, uh, you know, becomes an economic analysis, but also kind of analysis of, 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 of the political traditions and the myths of political traditions that, as I mentioned, you know, in the book early on, even our ideas about leadership. So all of this comes into Snowpiercer because, again, you have this figure. So Curtis in, <laughs> so you have a main character, Curtis, in Snowpiercer, who is featured and I make these sort of um, discussions of the imagery, you know, both around Clive Owen, you have both these tall, white, handsome kind of movie star um, actors who are put in these central roles. And then that influences how both the viewer and the film look and how we relate to it. And um, June Howey talked about how um, Evans looked too healthy to be starving on the train that was running in circles around the world and being trapped um, in the you know in the back section eating cockroach bars you know he just he, he looked way too good to be in that situation but it also allows them to highlight how Curtis is the one you know, and various characters saying to you're the one who's going to save us you're the leader now and they plan an actual revolution so as I talk about you know Snowpiercer, I love this film very much, but it is kind of a blunt Marxist allegory. You, know, you have the people in the front of the train, the people in the back of the train. It specializes um, both economic and social inequality and the control of the um, the powerful over those in the back of the train is so absolute. You know, it's done with guns and military. They're imprisoned back there. So this becomes kind of an ex expression of, what, of necropolitics. And coming back to your question about necrofuturism, um, one of the things that Kevin says, you know, that some of our portrayals of apocalypse, um, they don't reveal an option for a redemption or the new clean world. They just sort of show the catastrophe or the nihilistic conditions of our society um, reproducing itself kind of ad, ad infinitum into the future. And that becomes kind of a variation on what um, 
Mike um, Fisher called Mark Fisher calls capitalist realism that our imaginations are kind of locked in these storylines, which is kind of key to kind of the whole book, and. We can't, you know, we can't imagine an alternative to our current social order. So even our apocalypse stories become reproductions of, you know, a future that is still going to reproduce these same um, dynamics and situations and conditions of exploitation um, or being exploited. And 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 with it, and this is key, as you mentioned, in both um, Snowpiercer and Sleep Dealer, as well as some of the earlier films kind of the, the environmental, like it's not just people that suffer, the entire earth is destroyed. And so the way in which these kinds of economic and technological um, advances or fixes in the case of Snowpiercer produce a world that is, is killed or is dead. And, you know, that's one of the taglines in Fury Road, who killed the world and the film answers in its way. So Snowpiercer gives us this really grim, um, a picture of a post-apocalypse, the whole world's destroyed, everything's frozen, and Curtis is going to be the one to save us. And as they say, but it does this thing that's hugely um, interesting and, and I think important, and that breaks it out of the necrofuturism and makes it more um, speculative and, if not utopic, definitely um, apocalypse with a different direction, which is that Curtis you know, it turns out he's just killing his friends and people, even though he doesn't think that's what he's doing. He's leading them to the front of the train and everybody's dead except for him and um, the two characters with him. By the time they get to the back of the train, um, both Nam and Yona, the two characters that are with Curtis and who survive and who are sort of playing this somewhat ambiguous role in in the revolution or in the fight to get to the front and take over the train, um, they run into, you know, the, the engineer of the train played by Ed Harris. And it turns out Ed and the other revolutionary leader from the back had always been in cahoots. So the, the conditions of the train were always a plan to control the entire population and one which, um, it makes complicit both Curtis and um, his you know, dear friend and mentor, um, Gilliam, that Gilliam had all along been on the side of these terrible oppressors that they're supposedly been fighting about throughout the, um, the movie. And it's revealed that Curtis himself was supposed to be the next engineer, that he's supposed to take over and be the real leader. And so the way in which his leadership is revealed to be complicit and even reproducing the the same system that they've been in is one of the storylines that the film goes into but then it sort of it literally blows up the train as nam has wanted to do and then you have like a complete shift or jump um, the apocalyptic leap as ben Hamin used to say out of the storyline that you've been in and yona and the little boy timmy are sort of walking off into a landscape that you know, it may not be realistic, but they are portraying the sort of the option of getting out, you know, getting off the train and kind of changing the entire structure of how society and human life kind of are organized. And I think that's kind of why Snowpiercer is so beloved. I mean, it also does just these hilarious analyses of very specific conditions, you know, in terms of governance and in terms of political speech, um, you know, everyone has their place and you should know your place and be happy in it and sorts of things that come up. Um, 
but that that leap out of the train and destroying the train that has become to you know symbolize all of capitalism and Western society um, is the move that the film makes that I think is really interesting and productive, um, and some have said even post-human in terms of some of the things it does with the possibility of surviving in this frozen landscape. Although other fans and critics are like, there's you know this is not useful because maybe this is necrofuturist and that they just don't survive. Like they're all stuck in, in a freeze to death within days or hours of getting out of the train. But that's not what I hope. And that's what the film leaves you with is this image of possibility. And I think that's why it engages with future um, necrofuturism, but then also escapes it or tries to show possibilities that aren't already elaborated. Yeah, I would tend to agree with the more optimistic slant. But let's talk about Sleep Dealer. So I, I'm guessing it's a film fewer listeners may have heard of. So maybe you can just tell us what it's about. Although, like I said, uh, just coincidentally, I keep um, running into um, criticism that is talking about this film. So apparently I need to go watch it. Uh, tell us about this one and what you see going on here in terms of the themes we're discussing. Well, it's true that, you know, I highly recommend this film. I teach it a lot. Um, Alex Rivera, who's a Peruvian American um, film director and very much an activist. So Bong Joon-ho, particularly with his recent work, and Rivera, um, in some way, I mean, Cuaron and George Miller also have their kind of um, histories as filmmakers doing really interesting things. But both of these directors, as you said, are um, in your introduction, kind of working outside um, traditional kind of film production and their perspectives are definitely coming, looking at not just neoliberalism, but looking at sort of global capitalist organization in a really particular way. For Rivera, um, in Sleep Dealer comes out in 2008. It was this incredibly low budget border film. He worked with largely Mexican crew and um, artists, but he also has um, American actors in it. The film is and mostly in Spanish, but a mix of English and Spanish um, comes up. It's actually mostly in Spanish. So it's focusing on the U.S.-Mexico border, but he's kind of identifying things that aren't just really about Mexico or Mexicans, but largely about the U.S. and the contemporary society. And students and viewers tend to love it because even with, I just think it has a really interesting portrayal and analysis of both environmental and economic and social conditions. And it's a satire in many ways. I mean, it begins with a family in Oaxaca that um, their home in this very um, bare bones Oaxacan desert is exploded by a drone who's being controlled from San Diego. And they're living near a landscape that used to be um, flourishing and productive. And the father was really happy being a sort of small town patron who had land and was a successful farmer, but now they can't farm um, very effectively because all the water is being controlled by the U.S. by a U.S. or multinational um, global consortium that has expropriated, you know, the resource of water, put a dam up and put machine guns all around it. So the notion of militarizing the divisions of, um, you know, global capitalism and dispossessing people of both not just their land or their um, but their livelihoods and their and their the landscape the entire country. So that's one of the many things that Sleep Dealer does that is really um, 
really interesting and effective. And also it's framed, you know, many of these films, as we were talking about with Whedon, use film humor and irony to um, allow the audience to kind of get the point that is being exposed and sort of to have a moment to kind of think about, okay, that's really messed up. You know, so what is happening here? And, and to recognize some of the similarities. But as you say, what Sleep Dealer does then is move Mimo. So it has another central character and it's kind of a hero's journey um, and even a building's roman. You know, the young man from the provinces makes his way to the capital and encounters corrupt worldly people and learns their ways and then sort of becomes a man or becomes a um, kind of enters into society in a more central way. And that storyline, again, is um, in Sleep Dealer and reproduced there, and me, but it's set in this different place. And so Mimo goes to Tijuana and he runs into a femme fatale. So part of the things I'm doing is showing how Rivera's critique and his satire, but also the hopefulness of the story um, allows, you know, kind of a different perspective on the apocalyptic genre and what it can do and, and sort of, like you mentioned, transnationalizing it and exposing kind of different um, possibilities. But also that because Nemo and um, his romantic interests become the central characters, although you also have Rudy, who is the drone pilot, who comes in and gets lose um, the romance interest character. Um, she's, this is where the um, cyberpunk comes in. There's a whole discussion of instead of actual migration of labor, it's done, um, um, it's done, how do you say it? virtually so the there's sleep dealers or the factories where all the workers stay on the mexican side of the border but they send their labor to you know u.s um locations you know they do agricultural work building Mimo ends up on a skyscraper and so the the idea of neoliberal capitalism not being tied to you know the issue of i don't know how new media and um the internet or not the internet but i'm trying to think of the great word so the sort of cyberspace aspect of of labor now being expropriated it's not even you know disembodied and that becomes another critique that the film's launching as one of the foreman says you know this is what the u.s has always wanted all the work and none of the workers and the film sort of shows how that would play out so but mimo is fine with this he wants to go make the money there's a lot of money to be made um luz is busy in the other cyber economy of selling stories. Um, so her memories are actually downloaded into her computer and then they sold as kind of, she says she's a writer, but they're actually, you know, absorbed transcriptions of memories that she has. And this is how Rudy finds Mima. So maybe I'm going into too much plot detail, but it's, it's a really fun film. And I argue that, you know, it does have these three characters kind of binding together and eventually taking control of the military drone and blowing up the dam and therefore water gets back to um, Mimo's um, village in Oaxaca and so they and then everybody has to go on the run and so it becomes kind of an allegory of a revolution from below and it you know that things can change so that's where it's again not necro um, futurist because it really is an allegory of revolution kind of like um, Fury Road and with this shift in characterization that is focusing, as you mentioned, on Mexico, Mexicans, and sort of the excluded of the global economy and, and the work that they're doing, the divisions in labor that that economy relies upon. 
and I'm sort of part of my argument in the chapters, all of this is great and it's a really satisfying film, but loses function as the femme fatale slash helper slash um, romantic interest in that story kind of returns to the romance allegory, which both allows Mimo as a migrant worker, you know, he becomes part of the nameless herd of workers going towards the border, um, gives him that hero status, but it also reproduces um, the sort of gender division of who can be heroic and who is put as the sidekick or who is um, sort of there to just support the main character. And so her characterization and is kind of the problem and the function of that romance in the story seemed to me to sort of have this thread of um, a serviceable or an instrumentally useful, but still kind of reproductive generic um, reliance on on that idea of, of gender, of men, masculinity and femininity in, in Sleep sleep Dealer. Yeah, that's too bad that it's kind of retrograde in that extent. It sounds like what you're describing to me is almost like a labor apocalypse. It's it's an apocalypse from the point of view of, of labor extraction and neoliberalism. That's a great way of putting it, exactly. And I don't want to, and this is true of almost all of these, like it's not that it's too bad. It sort of displays, or I mean, it is that it's too bad, but it's like, I don't want it to say, oh, they're a failure or it's not worth thinking about or watching or loving even that um, because sleep dealer does some excellent things. And a lot of what I'm doing, and this is kind of why the word critique comes in so often, particularly in the introduction of first chapter, you know, it's a both and situation where there's still like the generic um, developments and the, the speculative options and sort of the breaking out of capitalist realism it's not an all or nothing proposition. And I think that's what a lot of apocalyptic popular culture is showing us now. And that's kind of what I want the book to highlight. And so we can enjoy the great stuff about them and the interesting options and the, the tools for thinking about new futures and new possibilities, but also recognize how we're being played. <laughs> so that's sort of a, when we're being played and if we're being played a little or kind of what might be being reproduced and just noting that as we, continue to follow along the lines in both Snowpiercer in different ways and Sleep Dealer and and the other works. Yeah, the other commonality that I'm seeing come through here um, is that the optimism that we're seeing in some of the the works that you've selected, the optimism comes from a, a return to the notion of collectivism and revolution against um, sort of neoliberal extraction politics. And I think it's really, really interesting that I, I do think this is a theme that I'm seeing in some other works that I'm working on elsewhere, where there's this resurgence of interest in Marxist revolution almost, um, and that's coming through in science fiction. So I think that's really interesting. I do too. And I think it's really important. And it was really useful to me in, in the research and writing of the book and the turn, because it's really happened in the last five years or, or more, but not for a long time, the idea of speculative aesthetics. And I think, as you say, both Marxist, but other kinds of revolutionary potential, this is coming up as sort of queer studies and black studies as well, that sort of how can we, instead of being defeated by, you know, the sort of intransigence and the ongoing apocalyptic conditions that people feel correctly or not, um, surround them. And that, so that's kind of where I think the notion of speculation and kind of 
jumping out of some of the um, traps of critique of saying, okay, I've exposed the problems with this, therefore we can set it aside. It's like, you know, keep exploring and giving credit to and attending to, as Alexis Lothian says, um, the messages and the non-central narratives, because those are useful tools for thinking as well and useful tools for imagining and restructuring things. Fantastic. So moving on to your your final case study, um, which I think is optimistic in a totally different way. So this will be interesting. Um, another zombie apocalypse story. Um, it, this one's close to my heart as well. And that's The Girl with All the Gifts. This is from 2016, uh, directed by Colm McCarthy, written by M.R. Carey, who also published the novel of the same name that came out just about at the same time, I believe. Mm-hmm. And I agree with your assessment that this film is a refreshing surprise because it goes in a more radical and interesting direction than what we often see in this genre. So tell us how this one is different and what you think that signals in terms of its allegory. Yes, I too love this film. And I don't, you know, it gets a pretty short, succinct um, case study as part of the conclusion. But the, I mean, the obvious ones, because it's, again, a trick of narrative identification, right? You're presented with a prison scene or a school scene that looks like a school scene. And, you know, this really cute little girl is there, but you are not given the information that makes you understand just how terrible and actually how apocalyptic this world already is until some of the information is slowly revealed. And it's like, she's not just, um, a little girl in a wheelchair. She's actually been imprisoned there. She's a black little girl and the, everyone around her is military personnel who fear and loathe her. So the issues of who counts and who's excluded from the possible futurity that we're looking for. Um, I love how the girl with all the gifts takes the zombie as that excluded element that is a threat and turns it into the main character and the object of our sympathy and identification pretty quickly in the film. So you have both the gender and race, but also the human um, conditions that you know, the film is, is pulling into it. And um, Sammy Shock's done a wonderful reading of The Girl with All the Gifts in terms of disability as well as race representation and, and gender. So I think that's um, sort of the crux of it, but how you follow along um, with her and, and see how she both really isn't a revolutionary or doesn't start off as um, like Curtis does as somebody who's intent on overthrowing these terrible people. She loves them. And she is, you know, a part of the whole, I think really brilliant thing the film does. It shows how she acquiesces, accepts her condition, her position in, in the structure of things. She helps people, you know, um, tie her into her wheelchair. She tries to reassure everyone that she's not going to eat them, you know, and she tries not to, um, because she isn't, you know, actually, that's not her intent. She loves, um, Miss Justino, Miss Justino, uh, Miss Justino. So, and so you have that, and then you have this terrible doctor played by Glenn Coase, Dr. Caldwell, who's after um, her body, who wants to take Melanie and just cut her up into parts and, and analyze why she has the virus that caused the zombie apocalypse, but has been, an, she's an adaptation. So I think one of the, you know, this one is different because it's addressing um, even more explicitly that we're talking about, you know, who counts as human, who counts as worth saving and what is expendable. And it turns that character of the zombie into um, kind of like River in Firefly, the hope for the futurity. She's actually the only one that can um, 
adapt in this world. Like the world is already killed. And it turns out like these humans that are supposed to be the feisty group that's going to go off and start a new um, humanity. You know, there's like eight of them or five. Of them. There's very few left once the settlement, that, um, um, the military base that they're in initially is destroyed by an inclusion, uh, you know, an invasion of the Hungries. So that's one of the things that sort of shows that the conditions that had, it doesn't, in classical apocalypse, you don't know, kind of always know why or even what happened that caused the end of the world. You're sort of stuck with that ending happening. And that sort of foggy origin story allows it to gesture towards um, other historical societal questions, or it can focus on, okay, how will humanity work and save itself? But in The Girl with All the Gifts, um, it becomes clear that, you know, Melanie's like, well, you know, why should it be us that dies for you? And she allows the sort of evolutionary kind of environmental thing um, that was already happening. She sort of enables it to make its final leap. And so everybody's going to be infected with the virus. But her and her kind, who she finds, discovers when they end up in this overgrown London, um, they're going to go on. That's where the futurity is going to be. And she saves, she's able to save Miss Justino, but now the human, you know, the white human person is kind of locked in this little um, van that's been medically sealed for her own protection. And she will teach them, but they themselves are kind of a new version of what is going to move forward into society. And as you said, it's collective. Um, they're breaking a lot of the, the film breaks a lot of the, um, conventions of kind of who the survivalist appeal of how the apocalypse works. And so it turns out that group you've been identifying with is actually not the group that's going to be the one to survive at the end of the story. Um, I do mention, okay, so yes, Melanie is this sort of special individual. And so it is collective and she's kind of taking her um, zombie, um, and um, you know, sort of the notion that their brains, um, zombie-human hybrids, who are obviously intelligent, obviously um, capable of surviving, but also do have this loss of agency that um, zomb the zombie condition um, brings with it. Like they, once they smell food, they lose all self-control. So it even sort of changes some of the notions of what counts as leadership, um, because she's a different kind of person than some of the ones that we've seen or that are valued in terms of what leadership has meant in, in most of the apocalypse stories, both in, in this study, but also in general. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I love what it, it sort of, it doesn't just reverse it. It also takes it in a, in a kind of interesting direction, as you mentioned, and kind of towards revolution as well as um, transformation. Yeah. I would see this one as, if you want to call it revolution, it's it's a post-human one. It's a suggestion that um, right. th there is no winning for the humans. And I think depending on your feeling about post-humanity, you're going to either see that as sort of an optimistic triumphal ending where Melanie and her, like you say, they're hybrids. They're not humans anymore. They're taking over. It's, the future is theirs. You may feel good about that or you, you may not, depending on how you feel about that. But I think your point about how leadership becomes entirely a changed concept when you have people that don't always have agency because they go into this feral state is a really interesting point. I was just thinking how one of the girl with all the gifts, like um, to some extent, maybe that's not fair, the walking dead, but definitely it's Snowpiercer. Um, and these are fictions, right? These are thought experiments, but they're sort of showing how the kind of humanity that has been produced in 
the societies that are being critiqued is just so terrible. It's like, we're not going to miss it. These are people hmm. who are just like, they're already kind of walking dead. So the notion of the, um, what kinds of genres of the human, you know, settler colonialism and patriarchy have produced, you know, each of these texts, I think in some ways launches that critique. And so, as you mentioned with most viewers or many, it's like, okay, well, that's sad, but yay, that's great. It's better. (laughs) (laughs) It's also not sad. Yeah. Fascinating. So in your preface, you say that working on the book was the most fun you've had as an academic scholar until it wasn't, (laughs) but you kind of didn't elaborate on on what that moment was when it wasn't and why. So it was certainly fun to read. Please elaborate. What went wrong? Well, the world. (laughs) And I mean, I think it's just the way which, as I mentioned earlier, um, apocalyptic popular culture, just as I start this project, just sort of thinking about it with Silco in the aughts. And then I start working on Firefly around 2010 or 11. And so these were like conference presentations, the article on The Walking Dead. um, The first one was in 2015, but it just both the popular culture explosion and TV shows and survivalist TV shows, just, you know, you have revolution and you have 300 or the 500, whichever it was, um, just kept coming. I'm like, okay, I can't cover all of it. Um, But also the way in which a lot of my interest in this, as I mentioned, was sort of the obsession with leadership, the empathy that, you know, kind of seems to still dominate our political and social imaginaries, you know, in the wake of 2016, for example, with the elections in the U.S., um, the the directions of political culture and um, the sense of crisis and the sense of um, kind of danger that permeates a lot of the pandemic, you know, as people told me, you know, after um, COVID starts, it's like, oh my God, I feel like your book is coming to life all around me. It's like, yeah. (laughs) So so that part, I don't know if I enjoy, Um, but, um, and I, it's a little, I'm trying to take a lesson from what I've learned in, in the reading and for it and writing of it, which is, you know, looking for the possibilities and the options that are optimistic and transformative and not get caught in the, um, pessimism of, uh, you know, necro futurism kind of saying, okay, this is what it's going to be, but there is still, yeah. So that's part of it. It's just a lot. <laughs> yeah. That's a good way of putting it. Well, Catherine, I've taken up a lot of your time, but in the few minutes we have left, can you tell us what you're currently working on? Yes, thank you. This has been so much fun, and I really um, enjoyed this opportunity to talk with these things about you. I do have various projects. As I mentioned, the other part of the original um, idea around Apocalypse as a mode as well as an allegory um, had some sources in literature. And so there's some work on Cormac McCarthy, you know, you have the road, but also I tend to read, um, some of his other work as kind of crypto apocalyptically. And I have one piece that is in, I think a pipeline somewhere, um, on McCarthy and Roberto Bolaño. Um, there's a lot of Latin American writers. So in the literary, uh, um, expression, it's not always the apocalypse. Although sometimes it is say Margaret Atwood or N.K. Jemison. Um, an explicit, you know, speculative fiction or sci-fi story of apocalypse. But there's also kind of mode, kind of as we were just talking about humanity, representing subjectivity, sort of exposing the the ways in which subjectivity and agency 
don't work in the same ways that we used to, we assume in the tradition. And so narration is changing and the kinds of ways stories are being told as well as the kinds of stories being told in literature, I think has shifted in some really interesting ways to reflect the, the kind of neoliberal um, conditioning of what selfhood is now. So I'm interested in sort of abjection and apocalypse in literature and kind of taking up that project. I'll probably just start with a couple articles. And I have one dangling piece from this project on uh, Mr. Robot, which had been one of the ideas I had for the conclusion, the TV show. And um, I'm working with a group and we're a group organized around masochistic capitalism and sort of talking about Mr. Robot's vision of revolution and um, subjectivity, also addiction and mental illness and, and the the idea of the hero. Um, so those are a couple of things on the plate. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, I want to thank you for being on the show today. Your book was a real pleasure to read. As I already mentioned, it was so much fun. I'm so glad you were able to come chat with me about it in person. So thanks again. Thank you again, Carrie Lynn. It was a great experience and your questions were just really generative. Enjoyed our time. <laughs>